Hello and welcome to episode 3.0.0.0 of Kill the Judge podcast. I never deliberately associate songs to serial killers, nor have I ever previously made a song association to one, but this time around I made an involuntary association. But this time around I made an involuntary association with the guy that we're going to talk about in this episode. The song is called Disgustipated by Tool, and most of its lyrics repeat the following with increased intensity through the song. This is necessary. This is necessary. Life feeds on life. Feeds on life. Feeds on life. And and it repeats that. I did a terrible job representing that song. It's actually an awesome song. So please don't just go off how I just did that uh, that impression of it. It was absolutely terrible. What I do recommend that you do is that you actually go and listen to that song before continuing with this episode. So again, it is called Disgustipated by Tool. Besides the song association, I actually made a character association, and so we'll see if you can guess who that character is based off this impression. Stupid fat hobbitses. Epstein didn't kill himself. So I guess guess based off that, you could probably imagine what character I'm referring to. And that character is Gollum from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And what I, I don't like about the movie adaptations is how they make Gollum seem cute and likable. They completely avoid talking about all the nasty things he did when he came out from under the mountain. This quote about Gollum not only illustrates my previous point, but it basically applies to the serial killer that I'm going to talk about. Quote, The woodman said that there was some new terror abroad, a ghost that drank blood. It climbed trees to find nests, it crept into holes to find the young, it slipped through windows to find cradles, unquote. To some extent, too, the way there, there's a quote from Animal Farm that I think applies to this. And that is all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. But in this case, obviously, we're going to substitute some words. But I I think that all serial killers are disgusting, but some serial killers are more disgusting than others. Could never be truer than it is in this case. It's one of the most disgusting cases I know of. The killer's name is Richard Chase, and he became known as the Vampire of Sacramento. Chase was born May 23rd, 1950. None of his early development would indicate he was disturbed in any way. He walked, talked, and was house-trained by acceptable ages, though he did wet the bed until about eight. His parents and a grandma said the best description of his temperament as a kid would be, quote, passive, unquote. He wasn't particularly outgoing or affectionate, but he didn't have any disciplinary issues either. He did like playing with matches, though, and on at least one occasion started a fire. Bedwetting beyond a certain age... Fire setting and animal cruelty form what's referred to as the McDonald Triad and contends that people with even two of those characteristics are more likely to develop into violent serial offenders later in life. He grew up in a very dysfunctional family. His dad was an alcoholic and his mom was, quote, tormented by suspicions her husband was unfaithful to her and was trying to poison her, unquote. In 1953, the family moved into their first house. The family situation got so bad that in 1962, Richard's mom was seen by at least two psychiatrists. Marital problems led to financial ones and they lost the house in 1963. At that time, Richard was a high school junior. Nobody's certain how much all of his environment affected his development, but he 
quote, appears to have withdrawn into a world of mental chaos controlled by fantasies of power and magical thinking, unquote. Richard went to high school from 64 to 68 because he felt the bones in the back of his head were coming through the skin. He also started hearing voices. At his mom's house, she'd hear him say things like, quote, I'm not going to do that, unquote, and, quote, stop bothering me, unquote. In 1973, he was at a party where he tried grabbing a lady's boobs. They asked him to leave. He did, but then he returned and had to be restrained. They called the cops, and during the struggle, a 22 revolver fell from his pants. He was arrested, his dad bailed him out, and he began complaining of having sustained severe head injuries from the police and partygoers, though there was no evidence of serious injury. He visited a lot of doctors that all told him he was fine, but he wouldn't accept their answers. Thereafter, friends and family noticed Richard complained a lot more of imaginary sicknesses. He basically becomes a hypochondriac. He went to live with his grandma where he became a school bus driver. He'd never follow main routes and would take back alleys. He also didn't keep up with his bus's maintenance or other duties and it often ran out of gas and eventually was ruined. At his grandma's he insisted on making his own food. He didn't know how to cook though and so he burned all her pots. She'd hear him talking to himself, saying things like, quote, Are you a good boy? End quote. To which he'd reply, quote, Yes, you're a good boy. Unquote. He'd walk around the house with his head wrapped in cloth and often do headstands in the corner. When she asked why he did that, he said his head hurt and he needed to make sure blood was getting down to it. She couldn't take any more of this and sent him back to Sacramento. While at his dad's, he'd sometimes help out around the house. His dad knew Richard was mentally ill, but he couldn't accept it. He believed his son's issues were the byproduct of, quote, misguided values and attitudes, unquote, and would tell him to, quote, shape up, unquote, get a job, and act normally. Though his dad was in some state of denial, he continued taking Richard to doctors. As early as 1969, a neurologist concluded Richard had a psychiatric disturbance of major proportions, unquote. In December, he entered the American River Hospital in Sacramento. He reportedly had a wild look in his eye, and they described him as, quote, filthy, disheveled, deteriorated, and foul-smelling, unquote. He was complaining he couldn't breathe and that his head was changing shape. They realized he had some concept of medical terminology, but often used terms incorrectly. For example, one time he claimed he had, quote, cardiac arrest, unquote. Soon after, he said someone had stolen his pulmonary artery and his blood flow had stopped. They realized he was a case for the psychiatric unit, so that's where they sent him, and then his statements became crazier and even more nonsensical. He was diagnosed as a, quote, chronic paranoid schizophrenic, unquote, though they did admit his issues could have been caused by drugs. Two days later, his mom showed up where she made a strong impression on the doctors. She was, quote, highly aggressive, hostile, and provocative, the so-called schizophrenic mother, unquote. She hated the idea of her son being in a nut house, so she took him out against doctor's advice. After he was removed, his parents' account of this behavior the next two years differs. His mom claims the experience scared him and that she was then, quote, able to work with him, unquote, and saw improvements. His dad doesn't remember any such improvements. By late 1975, she was convinced he was abusing drugs. In early 1976, he deteriorated more. He convinced himself he was one of the younger brothers who were a band of bank robbers who rode with Jesse James. He talked to himself, put oranges next to his head, quote, so the vitamin C would filter through to his brain, unquote, threw food, said nasty things around his mom and sister, broke things, and ran people out of the house. Neither parent rarely put up with him long. 
While living with his mom, he got on welfare so he could have more spending money. Him and his mom fought about that quite a bit, and sometimes his dad would have to be called over to his ex-wife's house in order to calm things. One day he asked his mom for food, and she told him to use his own money and get some. It upset him so much that he slapped her to the floor. Man, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, but wow, he, he survived that. Um, subsequent arguments between mom and son became more violent to the point Richard ended up making a big hole in the wall and got so mad his mom and sister left the house and had to call his dad over again. Before he drove over, he tried calming Richard over the phone, but Richard ripped the phone off and he ripped the lines out. After this event, they got him his own apartment. He kept himself in the apartment clean for a while, but then both became filthy. They were still in denial with how mentally ill Richard was. Around this time, he started drinking blood. He bought rabbits, but usually didn't cook them. He'd kill and gut them, then he'd eat their meat and viscera raw. If you don't know what viscera is, it's basically their guts and internal organs. Convinced he needed flesh blood to survive, he also drank their blood. He experimented with ways to eat all this, sometimes blending the blood and viscera, then drinking it. One day his dad visited and saw he was very sick. He was, quote, shaking and complaining of blood poisoning, unquote, telling his dad it was because he'd eaten a bad rabbit. What his dad didn't know is Richard had injected himself with rabbit blood, which was discovered at Sacramento Community Hospital. First he told them he was sick from eating a bad rabbit, then he told them the rabbit had battery acid in its stomach, which, after eating it, was burning through his stomach. They transferred him to the psychiatric ward where he was again diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. After concluding he was, quote, a danger to others, unquote, they suggested holding him for 72 hours and sent to a special psych unit, which they agreed to. At the special unit, he admitted to killing the rabbit, drinking some of its blood, then injecting some of it. He finally told them he needed blood because, quote, his heart was weak and his body was falling apart, unquote. Now he was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic acute, meaning the disease was out of remission and he was going through a flare-up. He wouldn't acknowledge why he was in the hospital, believing it was only due to food poisoning. He demanded to be released, but they wouldn't concede. He eventually escaped and showed up at his mom's. His mom and dad had cooperated enough to decide he needed to go back. He became even more withdrawn, doctors describing him as, quote, almost nonverbal, unquote. He wouldn't exercise or participate in group sessions. Sometimes his, got, his behavior got better, though. On good days, he was only delusional and thought his respiratory system wasn't working. <laughs> yeah, that was a good day. Bad days, he was, quote, unpredictably aggressive, hostile, and threatening, unquote. He still blamed his current condition on the party beating he took years prior. Neurological testing was done to see if there was an organic problem, but they couldn't find one. He was transferred to a new hospital, which he didn't like, claiming he was only in the current one due to food poisoning. Eventually, he settled into the new hospital, becoming more cooperative and even sometimes partaking in hospital activities. He still often had a bad attitude and always refused lunch. He, quote, still spent a lot of time lurking quietly in the halls and staring silently at people, unquote. Eventually, they find two birds with their heads broken off outside his room. The housekeeper saw him in the vicinity but couldn't see what he was doing. But when he came back into the building, he was covered in blood. He denied responsibility for the dead birds and said he cut himself shaving when asked why he was covered in blood. Thereafter, staff would sometimes find mangled birds outside his room, but nobody looked into it. One day, a swing shift charge nurse found Richard's notebook. 
It had entries about animals such as rabbits, cats, and birds, noting the taste and consistency of their blood, such as whether it was sweet, thick, so on and so forth. She remembers seeing Richard sneaking around outside, it often appearing to her as if he were hunting and that he was more active at it during the full moon. Which I think about that, it's probably he was out there because he could see better. He confesses to a nurse he had been drinking bird blood. When asked why, he says it's because, quote, he didn't want to die, unquote. One day they needed a blood sample from him. You can imagine how well that went. He seemed to be slowly improving, though. They had him on antipsychotic medication, and eventually he seemed to enjoy volleyball games and other events. I'm not sure why they consider this a sign of positive improvement, but he finally admitted he drowned the rabbits and drank their blood. The staff noticed they hadn't found any destroyed birds in a while, and that he hadn't been requesting blood. His appearance improved, and though still a loner, he befriended another patient. Eventually he was discharged, but left with the same diagnosis. Doctors didn't think they could do anything more for him, nor did they consider him dangerous upon release, but insisted he remain medicated. His parents got him a new apartment and even paid his bills and brought him groceries. For a while, his mom made sure he was taking his pills, but she felt they only made him, quote, easy to handle, unquote, but made him, quote, like a zombie all day, unquote. She had the brilliant idea to wean him off his meds, and she did. Somehow, Richard made new friends. He hung out at a bowling alley and would stay out all night, get home early in the morning, then sleep late into the day. Sometimes he brought friends home to sleep there. Lacking medication or psych treatment, Richard reverted. He thought his mom was controlling his mind and wanted her to stop. He accused her and his sister of trying to poison him with dish soap. After that accusation, she found the milk in her house had been contaminated with dish soap. Quote, Richard's preoccupation with his body developed into full-blown somatic delusions, unquote. He'd complain his organs were moving around, his heart was shrinking from lack of blood, and that his stomach was rotting. He felt the only way to save himself was by killing animals, drinking their blood, and eating their viscera. With that belief in mind, he'd blend the organs of cats and dogs, sometimes mixing it with cola. As he got worse, so did the cleanliness of his apartment. When his dad brought him groceries, Richard would never let him inside. They argued a lot about that, and eventually his dad stopped coming by. His mom complained about the state of the apartment and got the same treatment. When he had been hospitalized, his parents became conservators of his estate and person. Due to his mental disability, that allowed them to draw Social Security, which they cashed and used for his groceries and rent. Richard got tired of that arrangement and wanted responsibility for himself again. He also wanted to go on a trip. His psychiatrist didn't advise ending the conservatorship, but they let it automatically expire. He started cashing his own Social Security checks. His dad wanted him to get a job, but his mom helped him plan his trip. In 1977, she gave him $1,450 in Social Security check money she'd accumulated and took him to the bus stop where he bought a ticket to Washington. About three weeks later, he was back, driving a 66 Ford Ranchero. It was half car, half truck, and had Florida plates. I think something on the car said something like, I'd rather be flying. His parents moved him into a new apartment. He got to where he'd only come out at night, slept during the day, and drove the streets of Sacramento at night until morning. He had a neighbor named Linda who noticed this bizarre behavior. She reported hearing loud noises from his apartment, and sometimes he'd walk around with his mouth wide open, shuffling and dragging his foot. When she'd greet him, he never replied. Without an invitation one day, 
He walked into her apartment. She had two male friends over, and he left without saying a word. Around that time, he started carrying a shotgun around the apartment complex. Tenants, of course, complained, and a manager told him to, you know, told him to hide it if he wasn't going to stop. Tenants thereafter noticed he carried, quote, something wrapped in a blanket, unquote. Despite their fear, nobody pursued this any further. A tenant noticed Richard brought a big black dog into his apartment. Linda once saw him take a cat and two dogs in, and several times saw him carrying big boxes into and out of his apartment. Nobody ever remembers seeing those animals again. His parents also started noticing his behavior around animals. His mom had a cat, small dog, and a German shepherd. One summer day, the little dog disappeared. And about a week later, the German shepherd did too. His parents thought he kidnapped them, but he denied it. They had previously seen him squeeze the shepherd's paws until it yelped. His mom thought he enjoyed watching the dog suffer. One night, someone knocked on his mom's door. She thought it was Richard, so she didn't answer it. She heard a loud bang outside and opened the door. Richard was holding her black cat by the tail, the cat bloody and dead. He put it on the ground, reached into it, then rubbed its blood on his neck, smoked a cig, then walked away. Later he came back and cleaned up. She later learned that he buried her cat in her front yard. In 1977, some Nevada officers found Richard's ranchero stuck in the sand by a lake. The inside of the cabin was smeared with blood, containing a blood-smeared 22 and 30-30 rifle. On the truck floor was a bucket with a bloody liver in it and blood-soaked shoes. The officers eventually found Richard about half a mile from his truck, squatting naked, covered in blood. When they asked him where the blood came from, he said, quote, it seeped from my skin, unquote. They arrested him and impounded the car. Tests concluded that the liver was a cow's, and he was released when the U.S. attorney decided not to prosecute. His dad picked him up in Nevada. He paid a towing charge but couldn't have his truck back. The state of Nevada wouldn't release it because he didn't have proper registration for it. Eventually he gets his car back but, ne but neither of the guns. The whole family knew about his delusion that he required drinking blood to live. Richard's mom knew her son went on animal eating and killing, quote, campaigns, unquote. More neighbors noticed his weird behavior and more noticed animals taken into the apartment that were never seen thereafter. In the fall of 1977, he bought and stole dogs. He'd pick up strays or untended pets. A woman who owned a St. Bernard was leaving her driveway and noticed Richard pull up to it. She asked him why he was there. He stared at her a while, then left without saying anything. A week later, she saw a prowler but couldn't confirm if it was him. Later in October, he went shopping for black lab pups. He got a two-for-one deal for telling the owner he wanted to breed, quote, all sorts of dogs, unquote. He then grabbed two pups, but the owner noticed he didn't bother checking either of their sexes. In November, he called a family whose dog he stole. Days after it was missing, the family put an ad in the paper. Richard spoke to the daughter, giving a detailed description of the dog. She said the person sounded drunk or high, gave the phone to her dad, then Richard hung up. Richard's mom owned a duplex with an empty lot next to it. Neighbors would sometimes see him there at weird hours. Sometimes he just stood and stared, but other times he seemed to be digging. Neighbors assumed he was planting a garden, but nothing ever grew. In early December, he bought a 22 pistol but had to wait a while before picking it up. Richard lied when answering the question asking if the person had a previous history of mental health issues. 
When he picked up the pistol, he bought some shells. Christmas was close and Richard wanted his mom to let him have Christmas dinner with her. He cleaned up and pleaded, but she must have known he was up to something and wouldn't agree to it. He tried forcing himself into her place, but failed. During this time, he'd often buy newspapers and keep clippings about killers or want ads about free dogs. He started practicing with the pistol, going through a box of bullets. The day after Christmas, he bought more ammo, and on the evening of the 27th, he cruised and fired shots from the streets. So one of those bullets hits a house wall, and later he fires into a kitchen window, allegedly the round going through the hair of a lady standing in it. On the 29th, he goes cruising again with the gun in it stuffed in an orange jacket that his dad got him. Around 8.30 p.m., he saw a man carrying groceries and pulled over. He shot two rounds, one missing, the other hitting Ambrose Griffin in the chest. His family reacted slowly because they thought it was the sound of a car backfiring, but eventually his wife and daughter found him on the ground thinking he'd had a heart attack. They realized it was a gun wound. Griffin made it to the hospital but died shortly after arriving. On January 5th, Richard bought the Sacramento Bee, which that's just the name of their newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, and kept the editorial on the killing. January 10th, he bought three more boxes of bullets. On January 11th, his neighbor, Linda, was moving out. He cornered her and asked her for a cig. She gave him one. He started to leave and he grabbed her by the shoulder asking for more, which to that she gives him the whole pack and he lets her go. The manager again got a call about a black dog being seen in his apartment. The manager went off to investigate, but he couldn't find any sign of a dog. Sometime around January 16th, one of his apartment windows was broken from the inside. He denied doing it, but said he'd pay if needed. Around this time, he started to set fires near the apartments because, quote, felt the people there were persecuting him, unquote. January 23rd morning, he went hunting for his next human victim. At around 10.15 a.m., he walked into a backyard not far from his place. He didn't know the owner was home, and she watched him try forcing a door, fail, then walk toward windows. At the kitchen window, he came face to face with her saying, quote, excuse me, unquote, then went and sat down on her patio. She called the cops and he left. Less than half an hour later, he was caught robbing a house. The owner came home and surprised him. He escaped through a window and was chased until he jumped a fence. When the man told him to stop, he replied, quote, I'm only taking a shortcut, unquote. What that man came to find out is that Richard had stolen $16 in cash, some binoculars, tape player, dagger, and a stethoscope. He didn't bother stealing any of the watches or jewelry. He also pissed in an open drawer and shit on a kid's bed. At 11.45 a.m., he went to a supermarket with his gun and rubber gloves. He ran into a lady he knew, but she didn't recognize him due to his dirtiness. She asked him who he was, and he asked her, quote, Were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? Unquote. This question obviously shocked her because her boyfriend had been killed about 10 years earlier on a bike. He tried making small talk, and she kept attempting to leave, but he would follow her. She paid for her groceries, left, and he was still following her. He tried to get her to wait, but she wouldn't, and he even grabbed at her door handles as she drove off. This rejection likely led him to do what he did immediately after this. He went to some houses by the supermarket parking lot, walking across the porch of a husband and wife, headed to a house two doors down where he saw a young woman walking. He entered through the front door, fired a shot, then ran into 22-year-old Teresa Wallen when she came through the door. She was three months pregnant and tried defending herself from the first two shots with her arm. The third shot was with the barrel to her head. 
He drug her into a room and exposed her boobs and pulled her pants down. He went and got a carving knife and when he returned, while she was still alive but likely unconscious, cut her from chest to belly button, pulled out her spleen and rolls of intestines. Quote, he stabbed her liver, cut her diaphragm, severed one lung, sliced her pancreas in two, cut out both kidneys and put them on the bed, and then stabbed her in the heart. Then he stabbed her through the left nipple and thrust the knife repeatedly through the same opening. He smeared her blood all over his face and hands and licked it off his rubber-gloved fingers. As he tasted her blood, he pulled her left leg out of her pants, spread her legs, and made blood smears all over her inner thighs. He dipped a yogurt container into her blood and drank it, then crumpled the cup and left it next to her body. Finally, he defecated and stuffed feces in her mouth. Unquote. He goes back to the kitchen, he washes and cleans, and then hides the knife. He goes into the bathroom, takes off his gloves, cleans his face, but he ends up leaving blood all over the sink. The next day, he bought the Sacramento Bee to read about what he'd done. There was a long article about it, and he kept the whole paper. Teresa Wallen and their unborn child were found by her husband. On January 25th, he went back to a home he'd bought Black Lab pups from before. From that home, he didn't even bother buying one of the pups. He just took one, and it was a four-month-old puppy, shot it in the head, saved its kidneys, and he split its stomach open and drank its blood. January 27th, around 10 a.m., he parked in a shopping center and walked a few doors down into the home of Evelyn Meeroth. He shot her in the head. What he didn't know is that there were more people in the house. Her 52-year-old boyfriend named Daniel Meredith and 6-year-old son Jason came in to see what was going on. He tried shooting the man but hit the boy in the back of the neck, and then he shot the boy in the back of the head. The boyfriend came at him and was shot in the head. Once on the ground, Richard shot him in the head again. Richard rolled the body over and took his wallet and car keys. Like Teresa, Richard began working on Evelyn. When he drug her into the bedroom, he found a 22-month-old baby, David Ferreira, who was Evelyn's nephew. He shot the baby in the head and also dragged the six-year-old boy's body into the bedroom. He then removed her clothes, then his, and found two carving knives in a bucket. He cut her twice across the stomach and as she lay dying, mutilated her similarly how he did Teresa. He partially cut one of her eyes out and left it bulging. He butt-raped her and then stabbed her butthole repeatedly with the carving knives. He then drained her blood into the pail and drank it with the help of a coffee cup. Next, he focused on the baby's body. He took it into the bathroom, ran some water, cut a hole in its head and squeezed some brains into the water. While working on baby David's body, he was interrupted when a little girl showed up to play with Jason. When nobody responded, she went home. Richard left the house, leaving behind bloody socks and all the bodies except the babies. He drove Daniel's car, parked it in a lot near his apartment, and took David inside, and then went back and got his car. Once home, he could then focus on David's baby body. Beginning at the back of his skull, he cut his head off, attacked his chest and stomach, and cut him open and took his organs and blood. He stabbed his rectum several times and made cuts in his head. He drank David's blood and ate part of his brains. Cops found Evelyn, Daniel, and Jason later that day. The next day, Richard got a copy of the Sacramento Bee. Since baby David hadn't been found and cops hoped he was alive, a citywide search for David was going on. A detective knocked on Richard's door at around 5 p.m., he got no response and left, but an hour later, allegedly investigating on a lead from a neighbor saying they heard a baby crying, they were back at his door. They got no response but heard movement inside. One of the detectives leaves to go to the manager's office to call Richard, and but the other two stay behind. The detectives position themselves on either side of Richard's door, and eventually that door opens and Richard comes out carrying a cardboard box. 
he turns and tries to go back inside, but then he decides to just turn and run away. So a detective gets in his way and Richard throws the box at him. Nasty things come out of that box, some of which were David's brain. Detectives were able to subdue him and remove his pistol. They went inside looking for baby David. Quote, they were greeted by an overwhelming odor of putrefaction, unquote. Almost everything in the apartment was bloodstained. They found shit on the bedroom floor. Bones were in the bathroom and bedroom, but they couldn't find David. The other thing they end up encountering is David is uh, Richard's blender, which is obviously disgusting. They return to the police station with Richard so they could get a warrant. While taking him away, he tells them he hasn't done anything wrong and he and is asking to be released. Quote, my apartment's a lot cleaner, isn't it? I didn't do anything in my apartment except kill a few dogs, unquote. So the cops get their warrant and they go back to his apartment. On the wall, they saw two pictures of internal organs and counted bullet holes in the ceiling. In Richard's bedroom, they found a plate with a piece of brain sitting in fresh blood. On his bed was more of David's brain. On the floor was a bloodstained machete, 22 rounds, and just more human shit. Well, that's what we're guessing. It's either dog or human shit. When they opened his refrigerator, they noticed the shelves had been moved around so as to fit something big. They also found a half-gallon container of organs, likely human and animal. Richard was interrogated multiple times that night and the next morning. He admitted to killing animals and eating their viscera, but said he knew nothing of the murders despite the evidence they provided. Quote, my parents didn't bring me up that way. I wouldn't do anything like that. Unquote. He felt framed and said they, were, they had the wrong guy. Eventually, he tells them that he saw a blonde guy in an orange coat near the murders and that someone had been in and out of his apartment. Further questioning basically goes nowhere. When asked about Daniel's wallet, he says, quote, I didn't have that on me. You sure you got it out of my pocket? Unquote. Later, he'd tell them he bought it at a store months before. He then openly admits to killing dogs. He says the blood stains on his clothing are dog blood. Quote, it's just animal blood, just blood from dogs. I just killed a dog, that's all. Unquote. He told them he killed it because it was sick, but then he tells them he killed another dog because it was mean. Initially, he denies cutting dogs up, but then he admits that he did use the machete on them. He told them all the meat in his freezer was dog meat. They accuse him of eating people. Now, quote, You're crazy. I haven't. I'm not mixed up in anything like that. You've been eating animals and people, they accused him. I have not, he replied. What would you do if you found a dead child, they ask. Turn it right in. Call the police. You wouldn't flush it down the toilet? No way, Richard answered. When the detectives asked him what he thought people would do with a kidnapped baby, Richard said, quote, sell it, unquote. To whom? Down the street, I guess. The detectives asked him if he would eat a child that he had kidnapped. No, he stammered. I don't. I didn't never want to. Why would I? Do you think it would be wrong if you ate people? The Nazis ate a lot. The detectives were silent for a moment. Unquote. The next morning, two psychiatrists were brought in by the district attorney's office. At first, Richard refused to speak with them, but then he eventually did. Quote, when he talked about his crimes, he betrayed no emotion, remorse, or feelings of guilt or sadness. Instead, he described the crimes in a concrete, detached manner. Unquote. 
When describing the killings in Teresa's house, quote, I was walking around just like before. I saw a lady in the house. I walked up to the house. The front door was unlocked. I took my gun out and opened the door. I walked in. I came across the lady. She started to scream. I shot her in the head. She fell down. A man came running from another room. He saw me and tried to run away. I shot him in the back of the head. I looked around and saw a boy just standing there looking. This all happened so fast, I just shot him too. I then heard a baby crying. I went to it. It was screaming and crying. I shot the baby because it was making too much noise. I then carried the baby out with me. I took it home where I drank some of its blood. Unquote. Baby David's body wasn't found for another two months. Richard had put it in a cardboard box and disposed of it between a church and a market. Eventually they get even more insight into his craziness. When asked about his first victim, Ambrose Griffin, he said he thought Germans lived in that house and, quote, threats were coming from that house, unquote. He also admitted that he bought, quote, 25 dogs, unquote. Quote, I would read about the dogs in the paper. I would pick up the dogs and take them to, to my apartment. I hung a couple dogs. I bought a gun and then I started shooting them, unquote. When asked about how he felt approaching Teresa Wallen's home, he said, quote, like I was starved. Unquote. When asked about baby David, quote, after I got to my apartment, I took the little boy out of the clothes hamper and sucked some blood out of him. It was dead. The police started knocking on my door and I got scared. Unquote. This is regarding how he justified his killings. Quote, the whole neighborhood was a bunch of drug addicts and Nazis. Everybody who lived around there for a square mile, for 10 square miles, knew what was going on. Unquote. Because blood was everywhere in his apartment, almost everything in it was considered evidence. On one page of a notebook, they found a list of people he thought were conspiring against him, such as, quote, Hugh Hefner, Frank Sinatra, Raymond Burr, and Bill Cosby, unquote. When asked about his paranoid delusions, quote, There seems to be enough evidence that proves I don't think I'm suffering from any delusions of persecution, but that I am really persecuted, unquote. He was asked about whether he heard voices or messages, and he basically says he used to through the phone, and they'd tell him his mom had been poisoning him and he was going to die. When asked about how his dad treated him, he basically says he treated him all right when he wasn't being tortured by him. So they ask him what he means by, you know, being tortured. And he says, quote, by watching me, you know, he didn't care if I was getting poisoned or not, unquote. Regarding whether his dad used to make him eat all his food from his plate, he said he did. And that half of it was, quote, liquid detergents and stuff, unquote. When his dad was interviewed by the assistant attorney general, he broke down and felt responsible, quote, if I had handled that better, it would have been different, unquote. I'm not exactly sure what he means. You know, I don't know if there was truth to what Richard said. Maybe his dad used to put liquid detergent on there and make his son eat his food with it. I don't know why he would do that, but I also, I don't understand that response where he says, if I had handled that better, it would have been different. Even at this time, Richard was still paranoid about his food, saying he found, quote, volatile acid, unquote, and, quote, venereal disease, unquote, as part of a prison official conspiracy. He felt his body was deteriorating and asked to have tests ran. He later told the assistant district attorney, quote, they couldn't give me capital punishment because of psychiatric problems, unquote. Psychiatrists began arguing over the motives of the killings. Some thought it was out of, quote, sexual sadism, unquote, but others didn't. They questioned whether he killed him as a result of his mental disorder, and they conclude that he was insane. Others felt that even if he was tough shit, he's sane under California law. 
because of this conflict, the district attorney decides they need to prove that his first murder of Ambrose Griffin wasn't to, quote, obtain blood for sustenance, but rather as a means of developing the nerve to kill the rest of his victims, unquote. This proved to be harder than they thought because they couldn't match the bullet that killed Griffin to those found in Chase's apartment. The bullets recovered from the other scenes were also too damaged to be matched. Luckily, they found a way to match all the bullets. One of them he fired on December 27th went into someone's basement and warped some paneling. The guy who found it gave it to police and they were able to match that bullet to those fired in Chase's apartments and those used to kill his victims. The fact that they were able to do that likely played a major role in the jury's eventual verdict. The prosecutors had to try and prove his motives were premeditated and not simply done out of insanity and whether they could sentence him to six accounts of first degree murder. The assistant district attorney was required to prove beyond all reasonable doubt all elements of the crimes, namely premeditation, deliberation, and malice, a forethought, unquote. To prevent an insanity plea, it was also, quote, necessary to demonstrate that Chase lacked substantial ability to appreciate the wrongfulness of his acts and to confirm his conduct to the requirement of law, unquote. So the author of the main source of information for this episode is the author of a book called Alone with the Devil, and he was called in by the prosecution as a consultant to help prepare them against common issues that come up in psychiatric defenses. He told them that the defense had legitimate grounds for an insanity defense, but prosecutors and some expert witnesses thought that he was, quote, malingering or exaggerating his psychiatric condition. To the contrary, the medical data depicted a highly disturbed individual consumed by delusions. Though acting unintentionally, Chase was unable to control his passion for fresh tissue and blood, unquote. At that time, the definition of malice included, quote, an ability to control and conform one's conduct to the requirement of the law, unquote. The author of that book felt it would be basically impossible to prove Chase met that part of the definition of malice. The prosecution didn't care and they went ahead proving their case. They argued he acted intentionally and premeditatedly. To illustrate the latter, they talked about how he practiced shooting and how he'd drive around looking for victims and that he always went into homes with the gun loaded with rubber gloves and did his best to not get caught. They also basically argue that it, you know, that it comes down to this. He bought a gun and practiced with it shot his first victim at a distance, then progressed to killing them close up. Based on that, it was argued that, quote, the defendant exhibited behavior and thought processes that were intentional, premeditated, and deliberate, unquote. Though that conclusion was true, insanity and premeditation aren't mutually exclusive. The prosecution overlooked many descriptions of Chase's state of mind and that they were dealing with one of the craziest people ever tried. The prosecution got what they wanted, though, and the jury found Richard Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death. He spent time on San Quentin's death row, and for very obvious reasons, he didn't have any friends, and inmates frequently suggested that he, that he should just kill himself. Despite never expressing any previous suicidal thoughts or tendencies, he killed himself by saving up a lot of his medication and taking it all Christmas Eve or the day after Christmas. In this case, the book and Wikipedia have different dates, but other sources also list his death date as the day after Christmas. So, concluding this episode, um, first off, my heart goes out to all the victims and their loved ones, especially Teresa's husband, who had to come home from work and find his wife and unborn baby dead. The other victims that I feel for are all those poor animals, especially the dogs that he butchered with a machete or hung. I love most dogs and my roommate has a German Shepherd. Um, it's one of the best dogs I've ever been around and it's definitely the smartest. So the story about him abducting his mom's German Shepherd and then knowing what he likely did to it is very gross. Some questions that we might have are, you know, how might have things gone had there, you know, had his family been in less denial about how sick he was? 
especially if his mom hadn't weaned him off of his medication. Another question is, you know, was the death sentence appropriate for him or should he have gotten off on an insanity plea? In this case, I think they did find him. I think they reached the right conclusion. Was he insane sometimes? Yes, he definitely was. However, like they said, I, I do believe that that progression showed at the time of the killings he was sane. I don't think he could control himself, but then other ways I do feel like he enjoyed what he was doing. Because like they said, he enjoyed squeezing the paws of a dog one time until it yelped. He enjoyed calling those people giving them a description of a dog they were looking for, and we obviously know what happened to that dog. He would also save clips of, so he obviously got some enjoyment out of killing. They tried to argue too, was it sexually motivated? And yes, you know, it was. There was some report that said in Teresa's body, they found like an inordinate amount of semen inside of her. So he either came multiple times or, you know, it just really, really got him off to be doing that. So there was obviously a sexual component to it. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.